If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 29. As you're turning to that passage of Scripture, I want to share a brief story with you this morning. About 14 years ago, I was serving as an associate pastor at another church in North Atlanta. That church uh, no longer exists. But at that time, my pastor assigned to me to come up and serve about 11 or 12 families that were meeting as a church up in the Decula area in some trailers. They had tried to make a go of it as a church, but they just didn't quite reach critical mass, and so they were asking for help. And the church that I was a part of at the time agreed to help them, and they agreed to help them by asking me to come up and help. And so I was told to pastor them and to preach the word of God to them, and I did. And we kind of became a north campus of sorts of this larger church. Meanwhile, that larger church was constructing a much larger facility at the time, kind of a build it and they, were co- they will come project. And for a variety of different reasons, they built it and they didn't come. But then something strange happened. The pastor of that church decided to pull the plug on that north campus for reasons that just didn't make sense to me at the time and still don't make sense to me today. I was told that we were being a distraction to what was happening down at the main campus. I was told that we weren't, that I wasn't leading the campus well enough because that campus was not growing fast enough when in fact uh, we were growing and the main campus is the one that was shrinking at the time. But we were eating up too many resources, and so it was time to pull the plug. On top of that, um, I was told, as the icing on the cake, that I was being insubordinate um, because I voiced an objection to this decision. It was a very, very hurtful time, very painful time in ministry, one of the most painful times. Even today, I struggle with some of the relational and emotional trauma of that season of life. But as I look back on that season, I can clearly see the hand of providence at work. I see that God was working through those situations in so many different ways. Ultimately, those 11 to 12 families decided to begin a new church, and we constituted New Branch Community Church as a result of that. What I thought was a colossal failure, what what I thought was a ministry blunder of gigantic proportions and a hurtful betrayal by a friend, what in fact was happening was that God was tilling the soil for a new church to be planted. Susan and I learned a hard lesson during that season, that God's plans and God's promises cannot be thwarted by human deception and scheming. That just because it seems as though nothing is going according to plan, God is not absent and he's not asleep. He's working. 
even through the sins of others and even through our own sins, he's still working and accomplishing his sovereign and perfect plan. Friends, this is the subject of the story that's in front of us in Genesis chapter 29. This story comes at the front end of a significant portion of the book of Genesis dealing with the family of Jacob. This story and how it continues to resolve extends much further into Genesis and really to the end of the book. But Jacob comes into this chapter single and he comes out of this chapter with not one but two wives and four kids. Before we're finished with the story of his family, he'll have not two wives, but actually four wives, two wives and two concubines, and 12 children. So seemingly overnight, his life goes from very simple to very complicated. What started out as a short respite away from his brother's wrath, fleeing from Canaan, from his brother Esau, turns into an extended time in Haran. Back in chapter 27, his, his mother, Rebekah, told him to flee to Laban for a while. Literally, uh, the, the Hebrew is for a few days. Well, those few days, before it's all send, said and done with, become 20 years in Haran. Where is God in those 20 years? Where is this God who so vividly showed up to Jacob in the previous chapter in this dream and promised to be with Jacob wherever he went and whatever was happening? Where is this hand of providence that God had promised would always be on him? Where was it now in these 20 years in the desert, in this protracted sojourn in Haran? I want us to keep those questions at the forefront of our minds as we read through this opening act of the narrative of Jacob's family. Genesis chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of the well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks have gathered together. Then we roll the stone from the mouth of the well, then water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. 
And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rachel's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. Jacob told, all these, Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give him to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name will be called Levi." And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We ask now, Father, that you would meet with us and help us to apply this to our lives so that we will continue to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus and so that we will glorify you more with our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look to interpret a passage of Scripture like this, we notice that this is a narrative passage of Scripture, and narratives are simply telling a story. It's different than interpreting any other kind of Scripture. For example, if we're interpreting a a, a theology letter, like one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, Interpreting that involves us asking, what does the theology mean that he's writing about? If we're trying to interpret prophecy, we're trying to understand, what does that prophecy mean? What is it pointing to? But when we're interpreting narrative, we're simply telling a story. 
narrative is just telling us what happened. The what of this chapter is very clear. It's a sad little story about how Jacob goes to Haran to look for a wife, and he, he meets up with his family there as he intended to. He strikes up a deal with his uncle Laban to marry Rachel by working for him for seven years. After he does so, his uncle Laban deceives him, and he, and he ends up marrying Leah instead. And then he ends up working another seven years to marry Rachel. And at the end, Leah gives him four sons. That's the what of the story. But if we're going to interpret what this story means to us, then we need to begin asking why questions. Why does this happen to Jacob? On the tail end of this mountaintop experience in chapter 28, where he has this vivid dream where the Lord appears to him in this ladder stretching from heaven to earth, clearly signifying to Jacob that the Lord is with him, that that God has initiated this presence in his life, the hand of providence will be with him. Why does this now happen in Jacob's life? And why is this recorded for us in Scripture? Why did the Lord so inspire Moses to, be in, to, to pin these words to be included in the canon of Hebrew Scriptures, which is our Old Testament? What benefit was it to the people of that day? What benefit is it to us today? What's the purpose of this little story? You see, putting these questions at the front of our interpretive journey will prevent us from falling back on mere moralistic applications of the text, like we shouldn't deceive. Jacob deceived his father, he deceived his brother, and stole his brother's blessing in chapter 27, and and now he's getting his due. Now the Lord is bringing discipline, and so uh, we, we we could point to the moralistic lessons in this chapter and say, well, we shouldn't deceive people either. And the moralistic lesson that God disciplines those whom he loves in order to keep them from sinning. And maybe even the moralistic application that that even God uses dysfunctional and messed up families like this. Because we, we fast forward in the Jacob narrative and we see that Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel and all the good that comes out of that eventually. And so we walk away from that and say... Maybe God can use our dysfunctional, messed up families for his glory as well. Now, there's nothing unbiblical about those ideas and sentiments. We shouldn't deceive people. God does discipline his children in order to keep them from sinning. And he does use dysfunctional and messed up families for his glory. These are good and reasonable and even biblical lessons. They're just not the lessons of this text or at least not the primary lesson of this text. In order for us to arrive at the primary lesson of this text, we need to use some of those, excuse me, some of those digging tools that we talked about last week, like what's the context? What's going on in this story? What's going on in Jacob's life? What has just happened? And what is going to happen as we continue in the Jacob narrative in the book of Genesis in the following chapters? Well, we're reminded back in chapter 27, as we said, that Jacob deceived his father, dressed up as his twin brother, deceived his brother, stole his brother's blessing from him. And then in chapter 28, as he's on his way to where he is now in chapter 29, in chapter 28 he stops over in Bethel, and God shows up to him in this dream 
And and he extends those covenant promises to him, promises of land, promises of offspring, promises that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth and will spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. But he also promises that he'll be with him, that Yahweh will never leave him, and that the hand of providence will be on him wherever he goes and whatever he does. That was the big lesson of chapter 28. That God promised to Jacob to be present with him. And God promises to be present with us. And ultimately he fulfills that promise to us by sending his son Jesus to be one of us. To be Emmanuel, God with us. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. That was the lesson from chapter 28. It was a high point in the book of Genesis and it was certainly a high point in Jacob's life. If ever there was a mountaintop experience... That was it. The God of the universe shows up to him and promises that he will always be with him and that his hand of providence will always be on him. So now we look at chapter 29 through the lens of that promise that the hand of providence would always be on on him and that Yahweh would never leave him. And we immediately see three things in this story that happened that that reinforce that Yahweh is in fact with him and that the hand of providence is in fact on Jacob. First of all, we see this, this journey from Bethel to Haran. It's covered in one verse, but the journey itself takes 400 miles. Walking, that would take you about a month. Traveling through rough terrain, harsh circumstances. Clearly, the hand of providence was on Jacob in this journey, guiding him, protecting him, keeping him from wild animals and robbers and thieves in rough terrain. Secondly, he miraculously shows up at this very well, probably the same well that Abraham's servant showed up at when Abraham sent him to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. But he shows up at this well that just happens to be a well where, are the, where these shepherds are at that very time who happen to know his uncle Laban that lives in Haran. And he happens to show up there at the very time that Rachel from Laban's household shows up there with their flocks. And so clearly God's hand of providence is on him miraculously causing him to show up at the exact right time and the exact right place to meet Rachel. A third thing that happens that reinforces that God is with him is that after coming to the well, um, he sees Rachel approaching with the sheep and he notices that the well is still covered. And so Rachel's not going to be able to water her sheep. And he wants some alone time with Rachel, and he looks and he sees all these shepherds that are just lying around with their sheep. Guys, it's almost, in the Hebrew here, it's almost a chastisement of these shepherds. Why don't you water the sheep? It's not time for you to just lie around. Water the sheep and then go. I want to spend some time with the beautiful Rachel, he says. The shepherds make up this excuse that, uh, well, we don't do that until everyone shows up with their sheep. And then we move the rock out of the, over the well and we water the flocks, which some commentators point to evidence for how big the rock is. Other 
Other commentators point that this is evidence for how lazy the shepherds are, that they'll, they'll wait until everyone's there and then they'll water the sheep. It's probably both, but for whatever reason, Jacob realizes that if Rachel's going to be able to water her sheep and if he's going to have any alone time with her, then he's got to move this rock out of the way. And so amazingly, he does what the shepherds were either too lazy to do themselves or too weak to do themselves, and he rolls the rock from over the well, and he waters Rachel's sheep. But again, we know that Jacob is not doing that by himself. We know that he's not alone here. Yahweh had promised to always be with him and to guide him and to watch over him. The hand of providence was promised to be on him. And so we know as he rolls this rock away, he's not doing it by himself. Clearly, Yahweh is keeping his promise to be with him. This story about Jacob going to Haran to find a wife parallels very closely, as we've said, the story back in Genesis chapter 24 about how Abraham sends his loyal servant to Haran to go find a wife for his son, Isaac. In both of these stories... The father tells the son not to get a wife from the Canaanites. They're both told to go to Haran, to his father's household, and to find a wife from there. They both arrive at a well. And the, and the daughter, in both of these cases, Rachel here in chapter 29 and Rebecca back in chapter 24, the daughter shows up at the well. In chapter 24 with Rebecca, and in chapter 29 here with Rachel, they both run to tell Laban about this man who has come from Canaan. Both Jacob and Abraham's servant are, are greeted by Laban as he runs to meet them. He runs to greet them. And Laban throws a party for both of them. So there are a lot of similarities between those two stories. So many, in fact, that the differences that we see between those stories should also be noted. And, and then there's two major differences that we see here that we should take note of. And the first is that Abraham's servant, if you recall, he prayed to Yahweh. He prayed to the Lord for guidance when he got to this well. While Jacob, Jacob doesn't mention the Lord at all. Listen to the servant praying in Genesis 24, verses 12 through 15. The servant said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who says in return, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. In that passage, the servant of Abraham comes across as a very devout man, a godly man, a man of prayer who beseeches the Lord to grant him success in his mission, to show steadfast love to his master by, by guiding him to a wife for his master's son. But it's striking that when Moses then writes down this story about Jacob 
in chapter 29, there's no mention of prayer on Jacob's part at all. He's just talking with the shepherds. In fact, I think Moses is drawing our attention to this very fact when he writes in Genesis 24, verse 15 of the servant. He says, before he had finished speaking, Rebekah comes with her jar. That speaking on the part of the servant is speaking to the Lord. He's praying. But Moses uses the same words here in chapter 29, verse 9. He writes of Jacob, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. He wasn't speaking with the Lord. He was speaking with the shepherds. Moses is highlighting for us. He's he's putting emphasis on the fact that Abraham's servant was a devout man of prayer. But Jacob, Jacob, the one who is in the line of the covenant promises, the one through whom God is keeping his promises to his covenant people, wasn't praying for guidance at all. Parenthetically, we also see this same, dis- this same difference in the selection of which women to take, which woman to take as a wife. Abraham's servant prays and he, he puts this fleece out b- before the Lord. Lord, let the one that I ask uh, bring, give me something to drink. The one who says, drink and I will water your camels also. Lord, let her be the one that, you're, that you have selected that you have decided is going to be the wife of my master's son. Puts this fleece out before the Lord and inquires of the Lord to guide him in that. He's dependent on the Lord's guidance in his decision. While Jacob, he makes his choice purely based on outward beauty. We're told that Laban has two daughters. The older daughter is named Leah. We're told that she has weak eyes which in Hebrew basically just was a reference that she was not very beautiful outwardly. While Rachel, we're told, was beautiful in form and appearance. So who did Jacob choose? He makes his choice based on who was the prettiest. Again, Moses is highlighting for us here that with Jacob... He is making these decisions not based on prayerful deliberation and inquiring of the Lord. Instead, he's making decisions based on what he sees on the outside. But recall from chapter 28, God's promise to always be present with Jacob, that the hand of providence would always be on him, was not conditioned on how much Jacob was praying. It was a promise of grace. It was a unilateral promise. I will be with you wherever you go. Just like his promise to Abraham, just like his promise to Jacob, uh, Isaac, his father, his promise to Jacob likewise was unilateral. And it wasn't conditioned on any kind of spiritual condition or prayerfulness on Jacob's part. And so that promise is still intact. The second major difference that we see between these two accounts, Abraham's servant going to find a wife for Isaac and Jacob going to find a wife for himself, is what transpires after Laban discovers that Jacob has come for a wife. In the story about Abraham's servant coming to get a wife for Isaac, the servant brings gifts for Rachel's family. In fact, that's why Laban runs out to meet him. 
because he sees his, uh, his, his sister, Rebecca, with rings and bracelets that were given to her by the servant from Abraham. And so Laban, who's very greedy in nature, he's motivated by material things, he runs out to greet the, the servant. And they have this feast, and then Rebecca almost immediately returns with the servant back to Canaan to marry Isaac. But not so with Jacob. This story is much more protracted. In this story, Laban discovers that Jacob is penniless and he's on the run from his brother. In fact, listen to Laban's reaction when they first met in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, he says, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, no doubt thinking that he too would be bearing great gifts from his brother, and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. Now, what were the all these things that Jacob told Laban? Well, no doubt he told Laban about him deceiving Laban's brother-in-law, his father Isaac, and his brother Esau, and how he stole his brother Esau's blessing, and how Esau is after, out to get him now, and so he had to flee, and so he's penniless. He doesn't have a dime on this journey, and he's running away from his brother. He's on the run because of deceiving his father and brother. How does Laban respond to this? Verse 14, Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. This phrase means more than, hey, you're, just, you're, you're one of the family. It means you're cut from the same cloth I am, dude. I am a deceiver just like you, scheming and conniving and doing whatever was needed in order to get ahead. Laban is telling them, you're, you're just like your old Uncle Laban, Jacob. So then Uncle Laban comes true to form. And he demonstrates that Jacob truly does come by his deceiving nature honestly. And he comes up with this deceptive plan to make Jacob work for him for seven years in order to have Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, Jacob readily agrees to this. And we see the love that Jacob has for Rachel. He says, he says those seven years were like a few days to him because of his love for Rachel. But already we're beginning to wonder in the story, a seven-year delay? God promised to always be with him. The hand of providence was promised to always be on him. Now he's, now he's got a seven-year delay? Have you ever had to wait seven years for something? I'm sure many of you have. In those seven years of waiting... Did you ever wonder, what's God doing in this? Has he forgotten me? Is he sleeping? Is he busy somewhere else? Where's God in this? But it gets worse for Jacob. At the end of seven years, he tells his uncle, hey, it's time to pay up. And so they have this wedding feast, and the wedding feast goes late into the night. And then Laban takes his oldest daughter, Leah, and gives her to Jacob instead of Rachel. And tragically, Jacob doesn't notice that it's Leah. And, and, and I've, all, I've always wondered, how could he not know? How does he not know that it's Leah, not Rachel? But we have to be reminded that 
In a world and in a time where there is no light, when it's late at night, it's dark. It's pitch dark. You can't see. Plus, Leah had a veil over her. Plus, he had no reason to question Laban. He he had no reason to to question that, that Laban wouldn't live up to his end of the bargain. After all, he had lived up to his end of the bargain. He had worked seven years to marry Rachel. He had no reason to question that this wasn't Rachel coming into the tent. And plus, the Lord had promised to be with him. The hand of providence had promised to be on him. He had no reason to question that this wouldn't be Rachel. Of course it's Rachel. I love how Moses describes the next morning in verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And we should be asking, where's God in this? Where's the hand of providence in in this story? Is he still here? Is he still present as he promised to be? Or is, is he busy somewhere else? Is he sleeping? Is he absent? Jacob said to Laban at that point, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you seven years for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Then Laban, ever the schemer, acted as if the agreement never happened was never in place because after all it was improper for a father to marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. He's like, hey, Jacob, you should have known that this was not proper to do, right? So there was no agreement in place. But I tell you what, Jacob, tell you what, finish the celebration for this one, promise to work for me seven more years, and I'll let you marry Rachel. And he agrees to it. He finishes out the week of uh, the seven-day festival of marriage with Leah. He promises to work another seven years, and he, at the end of the week, marries Rachel. We're told at the end of verse 30, he served Laban another seven years. So he marries both, both sisters. Now, please understand that we're dealing with a very real story here, real characters who are making moral decisions in real time, just like you and I do. So we need to be very careful about making conclusions about biblical morality based on an isolated story like this, saying that God condones polygamy because Jacob marries both Leah and Rachel is tantamount to saying that God condones drunkenness because Noah gets drunk when he gets off the ark. You just can't do that. The Bible does not condone polygamy. Instead, in several places explicitly, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, speaks out explicitly against it. So Genesis 29 is not teaching that polygamy is okay. If anything, it's giving a very practical warning that it's not a good idea. Not only is it against God's law, but it's a bad idea because What we see in Jacob's life in the ensuing chapters is a very practical reason why this is a bad idea. So Jacob goes to Haran to find a wife. He ends up with two. After it's all said and done, he actually ends up with four because the two servants end up being concubines or surrogate wives for him. But he truly loved Rachel. He only wanted to marry her. And now he's got to work another seven years for Laban in order to marry her. So church, where is the Lord in all of this? 
Where is the hand of providence in Jacob's life at this point? Where is this hand of providence that was clearly with him on the journey from Bethel to Haran, protecting him and guiding him and keeping him safe, guiding him to that exact well at that exact time when he would meet up with Rachel? Where is the hand of providence now? Seven years of of labor and you marry the wrong girl? And then seven more years of of labor to marry the right girl. Is God sleeping? Has he taken a nap? Is he focused elsewhere? Or has he changed his mind? And he's decided that he's not going to be present with Jacob anymore? Where is God in all this? Many times when preachers are preaching through Genesis chapter 29, they'll stop here at verse 30 because, in a sense, it seems as though that's a good place to stop. My copy of the scriptures actually includes a space here and puts a header before verse 31 through the end of the chapter. What we have in the first 30 verses are this this story about how Jacob is trying to find a wife and he ends up with two. In verse 31 to the end of the chapter, we see the story of Leah burying the first four sons for Jacob. And that that dovetails nicely into chapter 30, where we learn about the rest of, or most of the rest of Jacob's children. So it just kind of seems like verses 31 through 35 go with chapter 30. But if we stop the narrative here, then we're still left wondering, where is God in all this? Where's the hand of providence in Jacob's life? And if we don't get the answer to that question in this narrative, then then we're going to fall back on those lessons about, uh, those those moralistic lessons. So we see we we shouldn't deceive. Jacob deceived in chapter 27, and now he's getting his due. So we should learn the lesson that we shouldn't deceive either. And it's true that we shouldn't deceive, but that's not the lesson here. Those are fine minor lessons, but it's not the main lesson of this text, and so we must press on to answer that question. Where is God in this? Where's the hand of providence that was promised to Jacob? Well, we've got to go back to the promises that were given to him in that dream. And one of those promises was the promise of offspring. And not just any offspring, but many offspring, numerous offspring. That's always been an integral part of the covenantal promises, both to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob, the promise of offspring. And what do we see in verses 31 through 35? But offspring, children, just four, but it's the beginning of fulfillment. So where was God in all of this? He was fulfilling his promises. He was working out his plan. He wasn't absent. He wasn't asleep. He wasn't focused elsewhere. He didn't change his mind. He was working out the plan that he had promised to Jacob. Where was the hand of providence in Laban's deception? 
to give Jacob Leah first and, and, and not Rachel. He was fulfilling his promises to Jacob. He was working out his plan. We're told in verse 31 that Rachel was barren, but the Lord opened up Leah's womb. The one that Jacob wanted to marry, the, the one absent of the Lord whom he would have married was barren. What would have happened if Jacob had married her first? He would have gone back to, Can- to Canaan childless with no offspring. And so, yes, Laban sinned against Jacob. He deceived Jacob. But even that did not catch the Lord off guard. Somehow even Laban's deception was under the hand of providence. Even that was part of God working out his sovereign plan. And look at the names of the four sons that Leah bore to Jacob. Reuben, Simeon. The third son was named Levi, the tribe from which we get Moses and Aaron, the ones who God used to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. And the fourth son is named Judah. From the tribe of Judah, Judah will come a king, King David, greatest king the nation of Israel has ever known. Someone else would come from the tribe of Judah, a man by the name of Joseph, lived in Bethlehem. Joseph marries a young virgin by the name of Mary, and before they ever come together, she conceives a child by the Holy Spirit. And gives birth to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who would crush the head of the serpent on the cross, defeating sin and death forever. God was working out his promises in this whole story. Even though we don't see him mentioned until verse 31. In the crux of the moment, Jacob must have felt this is incredibly unfair. This is incredibly unkind to be deceived by my uncle. And it was. It was unkind. It was wrong of Laban to do this. He was sinning against his nephew by deceiving him in this way. It was incredibly unkind and unfair. But when he considered God's promise of always being with him, he must have wondered, God, where are you now? What are you doing now? you change your mind? Or are you not able to sovereignly work everything out? Oh, he must be napping. He must have missed this one. But all the while, we know, we see now, God was working. He was never absent. Friend, this is the lesson that we pull from this text. We can know with confidence, friend, with confidence, that God is keeping his promises to us and that his hand of providence is is still on us even when it seems like nothing is going according to plan, that nothing is happening the way that it should, even when someone deceives us, even when somebody pulls a trick on us and deceives us and where we're treated unfairly by people. Church, God is not absent He's not sleeping. He's not changed his mind. He's there. 
He's fulfilling his promises, and he's working out his plan. The Israelites would later read this story about Laban's deception and Jacob's wrong choices, and they would learn the lesson that their God keeps his promises even through human deception and scheming. And they would think back to Pharaoh's deception. I'm going to let you go. And then he lets them go, and then he pursues them in the desert. And then God causes the Red Sea to fold in over Pharaoh and his soldiers and chariots. And they would think of that, and they would say, yes, Yahweh can keep his promises, even through human deceiving and scheming. And for those who learned that lesson in Israel well, it would bolster their confidence in this promise-keeping God as they're on the shore of the Jordan, ready to cross over into the promised land with fortified cities and giants. See, in chapter 28, Jacob is given a promise, a promise of offspring, but that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and that his offspring was spread abroad to the east and the west and the north and the south. At the end of this chapter, he's got four sons, and they come in rapid succession. We see offspring, 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 offspring. It's not the dust of the earth, but it's a start. It's the beginning of the fulfillment. At the end of the Genesis narrative, by the the time we get to the end of this book, those who are attributed to to Jacob's family are about 70 people. It's a good-sized family, but it's not like the dust of the earth. After the Exodus, when they come out of slavery in Egypt 400 years later, over 400 years later, they are a nation. Scholars estimate probably between two and three million. It's a lot of people, but it's still not like the dust of the earth. The fulfillment of that prophecy comes through Jesus Christ And the church that is established with his early disciples after his death and resurrection. He tells them, go and make disciples of all nations. And so that's what we do. And the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 7 of the final harvest of believers gives us a picture of the fulfillment of this promise to Jacob that your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Listen to Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That picture in Revelation 7 begins in Genesis 29 with four sons to Leah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. It begins with this marriage to this woman that Jacob didn't want to begin with. A marriage that he thought was a colossal blunder, a huge mistake. Jacob saw Leah that morning after and he thought, my plans are ruined. My plans with Rachel and a white picket fence and children running around, they're ruined. Later that day, he agreed to another seven years of labor. He must have thought those first seven years, 
Man, what a waste of my life. I will never get them back. But now we know that God was at work. God was at work. Friend, when your plans are foiled by someone else's scheming, be reminded that God's plans are never foiled. When things don't turn out the way that you had planned, remember that things always turn out according to God's plan. When someone tricks you, deceives you, betrays you, think of Jacob. Or or maybe think of Jesus. He was someone who was acquainted with deceiving and betrayal as well. Judas sold him his, his sold Jesus's identity for 30 pieces of silver and he betrayed him with a kiss. The chief priests and the scribes came up with false testimony in order to condemn him. And Pontius Pilate, though he knew him to be innocent, handed him over to be crucified. And where was God in all of that deception and betrayal? Well, we know where God was. We're told exactly what God was doing by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, as he gives us the prophecy of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Familiar passage, but don't miss what it's saying about the Lord during this betrayal and deception. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 11. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken. For the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. As Jesus was being betrayed, as the false charges were being trumped up against him, As he was wrongly condemned as an innocent man, the Lord was still at work. He wasn't absent. 
He wasn't asleep. He wasn't focused elsewhere. He was at work counting his sacrifice as sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion against him. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have this promise that the Lord your God is with you. He's preparing a home for you. The hand of providence is on you. No matter what happens in your life, no, no, no matter who might deceive you and, and, and scheme against you and, and, and try to trick you, never buy into the enemy's lie that the Lord has forgotten you or that he's asleep or that he's focused elsewhere and you just need to get his attention. No, he's there. He's there and he's working. He's next to you and when you weep, he weeps. When you hurt, he hurts. When you're in pain, he is with you walking through that. But never believe that he's gone. And never believe that he will not keep his promises. The hand of providence is still on you, friend. And he is working out his promises. If you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't claim that promise. But the good news of the gospel is that God came to rescue sinners like you and I who don't deserve it. So by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, you too can be rescued from what you deserve. The righteous life of Jesus can be yours, credited to your account as if you were righteous before God. His death on the cross can pay the penalty for your sins and rescue you from what you deserve. And in giving you this new life in Christ, he gives you a promise. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. And even when there is scheming and you're being betrayed and it seems as, lo- as though your plans are going up in smoke, God's plans are never thwarted. And we praise God for that. May that be an encouragement to us all this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this reminder. It's so encouraging to learn this lesson, Father, that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how what is happening in our lives seems to be contrary to what is right, seems to be contrary to our plans, we can know that you're still at work. We can claim the promises of Romans 8, 28, that that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Oh Lord, sometimes we need help believing that. We need help maintaining faith in the midst of that kind of trial. And some of the folks that are listening right now are in the midst of that. God, through Jacob, remind them that your plans are never thwarted, that you're never absent, you're never asleep, you're always present. God's hand of providence is always on us. And that, Lord, you're working out your sovereign and perfect plan. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.